Every year, on her birthday, Laura gets a letter from a stranger. That stranger claims to know the whereabouts of her missing friend, Bobby. I love you, Laura. But there's a catch. He'll only tell her what he knows in exchange for something personal. So begins Laura's sordid relationship with her new pen pal, built on a foundation of quid pro quo. Something for something. Her quest for closure will push her to bizarre acts of humiliation and harm. Yet no matter how hard she tries, she cannot escape her correspondence demands. The letters keep coming, and as time passes, they have a profound effect on Laura. For she knows, deep down, that she can't trust a single word, he says. No Sleep Podcast presents Dear Laura by Gemma Amore Chapter 1 The woman with brown hair walked through the trees in a straight line, her mind's eye fixed on a target. She walked and checked the compass hanging around her neck after every few steps, traveling as the crow flies, feeling as if she herself were a small, tired, worn-out little bird, doggedly flying north. Migrating to land she couldn't see yet. It dwelt inside of her, that journey's end. One fixed point. One reason to keep going. Reddish-brown hair, now threaded with gray and beaded brightly with drops of rain, fell into her eyes over and over again. Laura was continually forced to push it back from her face with cold fingers, absent-mindedly at first, and then with anger. Her hairband had broken three miles since. She considered taking out her pocket knife, hacking the hair off at the roots, but she could not spare the time. Soon it would be dark. Soon she would be walking in the forest at night. The darkness did not frighten her. What frightened her was the thought she would not reach her destination at the designated time. And so she carried on, wiping the hair from her eyes, placing one foot in front of the other, checking the compass that thumped against her chest with each step. All that mattered to her was what lay at the end of the path. Everything else was an inconvenience only there to be overcome. Rain fell steadily as she moved through dense undergrowth, high-stepping over weeping fronds of bracken, heavy with moisture, snagging her ankles on brambles, 
stumbling into tree trunks as tiredness gradually took a firm hold of her body. Water worked its way underneath the collar of her jacket and crept into the tops of her boots. Her toes squelched in sodden socks. She kept one hand free as she walked, for balance, and the other jammed hard into her left coat pocket, curled, claw-like around something. In that hand rested a crumpled letter, one of many she had received over the years. She thought this might be the last of them. It was Pappy from Rainwater, the writing blurred, ink washed away. Unreadable now. It didn't matter. Every word in that letter was etched into her mind. Every single expression, punctuation mark, and errant, elaborate flick of pen on paper that the author was so fond of. The author she only knew as X. Specifically, there was a code in the letter, or a string of codes, shakily scrawled amongst the self-indulgent ramblings of the man who wrote to her every year on her birthday. The codes burned into her waking vision, glowing, beckoning, a long sequence of numbers and symbols. She saw them everywhere as she walked, in the trees, in the sky, on the ground, sprouting amongst the ferns like weeds, buzzing around her head like mosquitoes. The other letters she had from the same sender had similar codes in them. She knew what they were. They were directions. And she knew what the letters were. They were admissions of guilt. Confessions. They said, I did something terrible. And they were always signed the same way. Yours, with respect, X. And that, after all, was why she was here. It didn't matter if the author had a poor grasp of vocabulary, spelling, and grammar. It didn't matter if he was arrogant and violent and self-obsessed. It didn't even matter that he was cruel and had been cruel for so many years and that she was the primary focus of that cruelty throughout her life. It only mattered that he had answers. It only mattered that he knew where Bobby was. It only mattered that she put an end to it all. Laura kept on walking. The first letter arrived in 1994, on Laura's 14th birthday, one year after Bobby disappeared. She had grown up very quickly in that year. Physically, yes, but in other ways, too. More significant ways. By then, she had lost all hope that they would find Bobby alive. Coming to terms with this had a profound effect on the child that she had been and she sped past the tumultuous awkwardness of puberty like a flat stone flung across the sea. She became, almost overnight, a quiet and serious young woman with a solid grip on the reality of her situation. Her best friend had gone, and he was never coming back. The ties that bind, she realized, did not always bind tight enough. He had slipped from her grasp, and in doing so, he had taught her a lesson— a harsh and immutable truth that nothing is permanent. Everything can change. A life can alter beyond recognition in the time it takes to simply let go of someone's hand. His hand in hers was the last thing Laura remembered about Bobby. She still felt the ghosts of his fingers on hers, every day. Hot, smooth, and awkward. Fumbling, stroking her skin, They were clumsy with each other, as teenagers are. She was 13. He was 15. 
He had kissed her the day before, lightly, on the lips. And now they were going steady, as kids said in those days. And going steady meant holding hands. They had a habit of walking to the bus stop together. And that day had been no different. In matching school uniforms, they dawdled so they could spend more time with each other before the bus arrived. She remembered blushing, stammering as she spoke, unsure of what it was they were supposed to say to each other now that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. How was the rest of your birthday? It was okay. Mom was working late as usual. My dad tried to bake a cake. It tasted really bad. (laughs) Did you like the card I got you? I did. It made me smile. Well, I know how much birthday cards mean to you. I put it in my memory box, so my parents wouldn't find it. Wait, didn't you tell your mom and dad yet? That we're dating now? No, not yet. I know what they'll say, though. They're gonna yell at me. They already think I spend too much time with you. They trust me, though, right? They know nothing bad is gonna happen to you when you're with me. You're my best friend. I know. They do trust you. That's why they let me walk to the bus every day with you and hang out all the time. I trust you, too. Good. Laura, can I tell you something? Yeah, of course. Promise you won't judge me. Of course not. What is it? You have to promise not to tell anyone, okay? Not your mom or dad or anyone else. It's really important. And not any of your other friends. I don't have any other friends, Bobby. Only you. Just promise me. Okay. You're kind of freaking me out, Bobby. Yeah, I know, but it's important. I mean it. You're my best friend and the person I care about most in the whole world, but lately I... Ah, God, this is so difficult. I mean, lately I've been feeling like... Like what? Like no one really knows me. Not the real me. I don't understand. What do you mean by the real you? I know you better than anyone. And I like who you are. I I know you do, Laura, but you don't know me as well as you think. I have a different side to me. But you just said, I thought we were best friends. Yeah, we are. I mean that, but it's just, I don't know. It's just, I've been... mm. What is it, Bobby? What's going on? You can tell me. I think, I think I might be, I am, um, actually, you know what? Never mind. Bobby, you're being really annoying. Just tell me what's up before the bus arrives, would you? I can't. I can't tell you. If you knew, then you wouldn't be my friend anymore. If I knew what? What's going on with you? Nothing. I'm okay. Honest. Wait. I've got it. You're a secret agent. A spy. No, better. An assassin. (laughs) Cut it out, loser. I'm not a spy. It doesn't matter. It does to me. Yeah. Can we change the subject? I love you, Laura. I... I love you too, Bobby. Dork. (laughs) Loser. They laughed, but Laura's shyness returned, which upset her, because she'd been telling the truth. She felt she knew Bobby better than she knew anyone else. Their parents were old, close friends and neighbors, but using the L word with each other felt like new territory and Laura was woefully ill-equipped to navigate it. She felt a certain hesitance from Bobby, too, as if he were also unsure as to what the rules were now that they had begun to explore each other in different ways. 
So they carried on in silence. His fingers stroked her hand, and they blushed, and scuffed their feet in shared embarrassment. She wondered if he would try to kiss her again before the bus arrived. But he seemed preoccupied, his mind elsewhere, his eyes focused on the road beneath them. So she didn't ask. And then she realized she'd forgotten something. What that thing was now, she could barely recall. A pencil case, her homework, her lunch. It was something small and yet vital, something she would be in trouble for if she forgot. So Laura let go of Bobby's hand. I forgot something. I'm sorry. Okay. I'll just run back. Okay. I'll be five minutes. Wait for me, will you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, hurry, don't want to miss the bus. She ran up the road to her house, her bag thumping against her hip heavily. As she hurried back, she thought about love, about the word itself, and how grown up it felt to say, I love you. She thought about how nice it felt to hear, how warm and yet uncertain it had made her feel. It was both comfortable and terrifying at the same time. Meanwhile, Bobby stood on the pavement, looking into the distance with a small frown on his pale, long face. Laura would never hold his hand again. Thirty years later, Laura was lowering herself carefully down a steep, muddy embankment when her foot rolled beneath her. She fell heavily, arms flung up uselessly behind her, a wingless bird now dropping like a stone mid-flight. The impact as she hit the ground at the bottom of the embankment was shattering. All breath left her body. Small sparks of bright crossed her vision, momentarily erasing the jittering codes from her sight. There was a sharp, stabbing pain in her ankle. She lay like that for a little while, trying to suck some air back into her lungs, spread-eagled across a bed of lamb's tongue and bird's nest ferns and moss. The skeletal remains of long dead trees stuck into her, behaving like old, displeased women poking her with their sharp fingers. And all she could think was this. If a woman falls in a forest and no one is around to hear, does she make a sound? The uncaring rain fell and soaked into the soil next to her face. A rich, thick scent filled Laura's nostrils. The forest, gorged on fresh rainwater, belching out a mulchy, potent aroma as the ground bloated and grew treacherous. She lay there, panting, and tried not to panic about the fading light, about the time slipping away, tried not to think about how much slower she would be now that she was injured. And all the while, her ankle throbbed with fierce, shrieking pain, and she sensed that something was very, very wrong down there. Eventually, she regained enough strength to reach down with shaking hands and feel for the problem, the source of the pain. It didn't take long to figure out. Instead of flesh, she found a jagged, sharp piece of wood. It was jammed into the soft part of her ankle just above the heel, piercing the gap between her ankle bone and her Achilles tendon, right above her stiff leather boot. Blood, slippery and fresh, flooded down her foot. She wiggled the stick experimentally and gasped. The pain was incredible, shooting up her entire leg, ricocheting off her back teeth. She knew the piece of wood needed to come out, else she would be crippled and unable to use the leg. And if she was crippled, she wouldn't get to where she needed to be at the right time. Already the day was fading. The tree trunks around her looked less solid, and the sky sank lower to meet the canopy overhead. 
Her window of opportunity was closing inexorably. Time to act. All obstacles were simply there to be overcome. When Laura returned to the bus stop, Bobby was talking to a man she didn't know through the open window of a dark blue van that was also unfamiliar. Later, Laura would recognize the model as a Ford Transit, but at the time it was just a dark blue van parked up on the curb, engine still idling. The man in the driver's seat was talking, and Bobby was listening and laughing, a little uncomfortable, as young people are when they are humoring adults. Bobby had been brought up well. He was a nice, polite boy. They were from a nice, polite neighborhood. He had to stoop because Bobby was tall for his age, and so all Laura could see of him was his back, his school bag, and a tuft of his bright blonde hair. She could not see much of the man inside the van, because Bobby was in the way. But she had an idea of the size of him. He was so large, his shadow almost filled the entire front of the vehicle. And then, before she could do anything, before she could call out or catch up to them, the man gestured to Bobby and opened the passenger side door. Bobby threw a look at her over his shoulder, a strange, almost excited expression on his face. In the distance, Laura heard the school bus approach. She raised her hands, shrugging a question at him. What are you doing? Uncertainty glimmered in his eyes. The man in the van gestured to him once more, flapping a huge hand around in a circular, hurry-up motion. Bobby hesitated, and then did something that Laura would never understand. He straightened up, jogged around to the passenger side of the van, and climbed in. Bobby! What are you doing? Bobby kept his head turned from Laura, his hair curtaining down to shield her from his vision, and a knife slid delicately into her heart as he shut her out. Her best friend for years, her companion since babyhood, her new boyfriend of a day. Every morning for the rest of her life she would wake and find that thin, stinging blade still there, lodged in her chest. If only she could pull it out. If only she could throw away the knife. But Bobby sat there in the van, staring at his knees, ignoring her. Laura saw his lips move, saw him issue an instruction to the man. And the van squealed away, belching thick black smoke from its exhaust. Laura didn't think to look at the number plate, didn't think to run after the vehicle and see where it went. She was a child. She had not been remotely prepared for this eventuality. In her world, these sort of things just didn't happen. Moments later, the school bus arrived and came to a ponderous stop in the road beside her, hissing as the door opened on squeaky hinges. The driver shouted cheerily for her to get in. And in the distance, the blue van disappeared from view. Laura was left behind, and Bobby never came back. Laura clumsily shrugged out of her backpack, freeing up her sore arms. She dug around inside for her small first aid kit, thankful that she had thought to bring it. It took a while to locate, for there were other things inside the pack. A small trowel, two large bottles of water, a torch, a folded tarpaulin, energy bars, and a plastic bag inside of which a bundle of letters lay, bunched tightly together with elastic bands. There was something else at the bottom of the pack, too. Rolled inside an old towel, 
something heavy and compact. But she couldn't think about that now. She scrambled through the bag's contents and eventually seized the hard green case with a white cross stamped on it. And then, on thinking about it, a bottle of water and the flashlight. (sighs) Okay, you've got this, Laura. Basic tenets of first aid. Act fast, keep it clean, apply pressure. Laura set the items down carefully on the ground and reached for her pocket knife, stashed in her left trouser pocket. She unfolded the blade and switched on the flashlight, angling it so that the beam shone onto her ankle. It was not yet fully dark, but gloomy enough that she needed the extra light to better see the extent of her injury. The beam revealed a sharp, slender branch from a pine tree sticking out of her leg, the type that comes to a naturally lethal point at one end, like a stake. It jutted out of her skin at an absurd angle, almost jaunty. Her blood looked shockingly red against her cold skin. (laughs) Laura whined and closed her eyes, fighting back nausea. As she did so, a little string of numbers swam beneath her eyelids, teasing her. And then, as if an accompaniment, a voice rang out in her mind. Don't give up now, Laura. You're so close. So close. I'm waiting for you, Laura. Bobby is waiting, too. (sighs) Fuck you. Laura carefully uncapped the lid from her water bottle and set it to one side. Then she found antiseptic wipes and a wound dressing in the first aid kit and set those aside, too. The stick taunted her as she hesitated, shrinking from the task ahead. Could she really do this? (sighs) Of course you can do this. You've done a lot worse, Laura. This was true. Laura had done a lot worse. She was used to pain. She would never get used to the fear of it, though. (sighs) Get on with it, woman. You're so close. You can't stop now. So close. You're going to find him. You're going to make it right. Think of Bobby, Laura. Bobby. I love you, Laura. I love you too, Bobby. Laura gripped the flashlight carefully between her teeth, leaned forward, gently seized the piece of wood in her right hand, and carefully brought her pocket knife blade to rest against it intending to lever the stick away from her ankle if she could not find the strength to yank it out on the first try. You can do this. Come on, Laura. Laura silently counted to ten, chomped down on the flashlight so hard she thought her teeth would splinter, squeezed her eyes shut, and pulled. Laura's blood sank into the soil, and her screams echoed around the forest and the birds huddled together in the trees all around, took flight. I'm waiting, Laura. I missed you. Yours, with respect, X. Dear Laura was written and adapted for audio by Gemma Amore. 
Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Mykolski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Starring Kristen DiMercurio as the narrator, Mary Murphy as Laura, Matthew Bradford as Bobby, and David Cummings as X. Join us next week for Chapter 2 of Dear Laura. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyright for Dear Laura is held by Gemma Amor. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.